You know Geiger's bookstore across the street? I think I may have passed. You know Geiger by sight? Geiger's in his early 40s, medium height, fattish, soft all over, Charlie Chan mustache, well-dressed, wears a black hat, affects the knowledge of antiques and hasn't any. And, oh, yes, I think his left eye is glass. Hello. 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 My name is Michael Delgado, and I'm thrilled to share my conversation with Paul Smythe, who, along with Andy Merritt, is one half of the art duo... Something and Sun. They're based in the UK. Those of you following this pod know that I have a particular interest in social practice artists, so you won't be surprised that I wanted to meet this pair of lads from across the pond. Paul and Andy's recent installation at the Tate Modern met with both critical and popular acclaim, and it's one of the latest accomplishments in a partnership that has now spanned some 10 years. Quickly, for those listeners unfamiliar with the term social practice, it's a term of art, so to speak, that covers a wide range of art making that generally involves some kind of activism. But I think of it as a way artists involve a community in an artful, often poetic way, as if the community were a canvas. And often, the result of the work is not only a piece which stands on its own under the glare of art critics like me, but also raises awareness or initiates positive change within a particular social setting. Blah, blah, blah. Someone in Sun's work is much more exciting to talk about than trying to box them into a particular category, so I'm going to let Paul talk about his work instead, specifically about a piece called Future Fossil. Yeah, I guess um, we're, we're interested in the use of art as a framework for people to then occupy. And I think by creating installation works which are challenging or, or help people behave in different ways, um, use space in different ways, what we're aiming for is that the, you know, the final work is almost a performance over the years of, of people occupying and changing and adapting one of the structures or sculptures that we, we create. Um, obviously in Future Fossil we're building off um, a legacy in that town called Milton Keynes which is one of the early new towns in Britain so a settlement built from scratch which housing mm-hmm. is is very much in the soul of the place um, and particularly new housing and housing innovation and so we were trying to in the kind of simple way we like to work just say well what would a fossil of Milton Keynes look like in thousands of years time uh, and imagine that we'd uncovered it. Um, but in doing that, both create a story which is true to a place, um, but also uh, a location, a, a kind of stage that will be used by people in, in whatever way they see fit over the over the kind of centuries to come. Um, and that's very true to to a lot of our projects, I suppose. We we start with often a sense of wanting to create something new somewhere or add add something new to an area. Um, or create, or you know, in some in some ways, just explore an idea that we're interested in. Um, but it often manifests itself as an object that people occupy and can enter and, and can kind of um, create what they want within it. Um, and it's strange because it's you know, people, it's social. I guess I work on a combination of social practice, sculpture, and almost in a strange way, performance, because mm-hmm. we're really passionate and interested in the longevity of what happens in these spaces. They don't just, they're not created and then 
the people disappear after a week or two weeks, but actually that we're building something that has a structure and systems and governance and like people involved in an empowered way that means it carries on. Future Fossil features a life-size negative cast taken from a section of a typical Oxley Park house. It creates a new public space where community activities and cultural programs can be enjoyed. Oxley Park is in the Milton Keynes area, about 50 miles northwest of London, and Milton Keynes was developed as one of London's first suburbs in the early 60s. And it occupies a place in the UK mindset, very much like Levittown does for us here in the US. And Levittown, of course, is the post-war proto-tract home development of Long Island uh, in like 1947, I think, something like that. But Paul and Andy are primarily focused in um, sparking positive change in how we coexist with nature in our own environment. The work, however, is not didactic, it doesn't preach, and instead it's quite playful. And a good example is a new project called Trolley Reef. I'll let Paul explain in just a minute, but I'll say that Trolley Reef is a long-term artwork that will create a new oyster reef in North Kent by using supermarket trolleys. Over here, we call them shopping carts. Oyster farming is not only a sustainable practice, but oysters are also an excellent natural filtration system that helps clean the waters where the oyster beds are. The project of dumping shopping carts in an ocean, however, reminded me of a group of well-intended surfers here that wanted to improve a well-known surf break. Their idea was to make an artificial reef that at all tide levels would generate the perfect wave. The reef would also provide marine habitat, or so the thinking went. After dumping old tires partially filled with cement in a supposedly well-researched pattern, their results were disastrous on both counts. Now, I'm not suggesting that Paul and Andy are as hapless as these surfers, but I did wonder what he thought about unintended consequences. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, obviously, when we work, we collaborate. So in that project, we're working with oyster farmers and ecological organizations, um, which include some science and rigor alongside them. And that's something that we're just passionate, you know, we love, we love picking the brains of and being led by people who know what they're talking about. Um, cause our role, our role as artists is to, is to bring something different or to highlight or to, to test or to play with ideas that might be quite future facing and, and, wouldn't happen without the arts. I think that's quite important for us, that these are things that are perhaps slightly out of the ordinary. Um, mm -hmm. And also that we create a story around the work that makes people talk and be interested, who may not be interested in, you know, in this case, the changing or the, the changing of a landscape to um, purify water through the use of oysters. Um, mm -hmm. And that does require us to be playful. And the example of the, the oyster trolley reef is that I don't know if it's the case in the US, but in the UK, the idea of shopping trolleys in water is like a classic, it's almost like a student ritual and a young person's ritual that at some point a shopping trolley ends up in a body of water, a river, a canal, <laughs> or, um, just through some sort of japes or, or mishaps. Um, so there's a kind of famous, it's almost a sign of industrial decline to like walk around and see a shopping trolley upper, upended in a nice, uh, quiet, quiet river. Um, and so 
we're, we're very much playing with, with that idea. You know, in essence, shopping trolleys are static. You know, they're not plastic, they're static um, metal objects. Um, mm-hmm. Look very, very similar to the trays used by oyster oyster fishermen in um, Brittany and, and other areas where there's still a robust um, oyster population maintained. Um, so it's, it's playful, but you know, I think we also we don't we don't always shy away from unintended consequences. And the reason that's possibly okay for us is we are working at a scale which is is about playing and testing and and showing people different mm. futures. We're not we're not suggesting that we roll out a million oyster, uh, a million trolleys across <laughs> the <Right>. Thames Estuary. <laughs> um, so I think that, you know, it's, it's a bit of a, a bit of a cop-out answer, but I guess that by work, combination of working with scientists, working at a scale where we're being playful and it, it's okay to fail, um, we're not necessarily approaching this with the seriousness of a kind of surface against sewage group or a, we're, we're, we're approaching it with let's play with ideas, see what if we can almost trigger or excite people to try the real version of it later um mm. the bigger version of it and so um of course we have to be yeah, very careful in the materials we use and the processes we use so that we don't make obvious mistakes um but i'd say you know with the arts if you're not making if you're not willing to try some new stuff then you've got to ask why you're doing it um and if you're not willing to um you know just be that little bit further ahead than scientific than scientific rigor or in terms of your experimentation and your ability to experiment quickly then again i think you've got to kind of ask what you what you're doing it for is there you know if there's a commercial reason to do something or a scientific one those projects should be led by scientists and by by business people who have already solved it all our work is quite playful and interrogative and experimental making social practice art involves a lot of disciplines that aren't necessarily taught in a traditional art school. So I was curious what kind of background Paul and Andy brought to someone and son. Paul's going to explain the duo's focus on having their art achieve something positive and useful, but also in this response, he's going to describe their first project together from over 10 years ago called Farm Shop. And it's a project that created a restaurant that took the concept of Local vor to the extreme. Yeah, well, it's, yeah. So it's two of us, and we. Um, I I come from like a, a background, I suppose, of being interested in environmental activism and practicing it when I was younger, and also um, engineering design. And Andy comes from a um, graphic design background, um, and we both, I guess, practice in the visual arts from from yeah, quite. Um, increasingly similar standpoints but I guess when we first started working together 10 or 12 years ago it was just wanting to do projects and sort of seeing how do we have ideas and and sort of just make them happen and I've always felt as someone who who whilst I loved art as a kid I wasn't a practicing artist when we started working together 10 years ago was that it's an incredibly freeing space to work in if you're passionate about testing things and I guess where I'd really, you know, where I'd say our work is, is most enjoyable is that the arts are one of the few environments that you can play um, without necessarily the constraints of does the financial, do the financials stack up? Is it going to break? You know, like, yeah. Um, <laughs> and of course, we, 
we work with people who who make sure things don't break. Like, you know, we obviously work with engineers and we work with professionals to to make things proper. Um, but also, there's a playfulness in that. Is that the whole idea of the arts is particularly if you come to it with even the idea of function, which is quite new and novel in the arts. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, we actually want to, this to achieve something positive too. Isn't something yeah. the art world is particularly comfortable with or used to. And because you're coming into a field which is often just about feelings, emotion, you know, uh, objects, if you come into that with some social or environmental purpose, which we've always done, it's a really freeing environment to test and to play. And I think one of our early projects is quite a good example of that, of, of Farm Shop, which we was our first big project together, um, where we took over a building in Hackney and um, just set, started off with the experiment of asking ourselves how much food could we grow in a shop. Um, we basically took over an old terraced, terraced building and shop in uh, the middle of Hackney about 10 years ago, and we were farming fish in there. We were growing mushrooms in the basement, a full room full of tomatoes being grown hydroponically, uh, chickens in the back. Um, and that was quite interesting because we did that, you know, when we did that, there was no LEDs being used in food growing. There was no vertical farms out there. We did it as an experiment, and it really captured people's imagination. And, you know, we know as a fact that many of the people who've gone on to to start now really serious businesses around doing that 10 years later either volunteered with us or came through the space and it inspired them and for us it was just a, it was you know, very much a playful experiment um, mm-hmm. which we learned a lot about but for other people I think it was a kind of a test of the future like a little demonstration through an artwork or installation of what could what could become um, so I think we're quite comfortable with our work sitting in that space of, of provo- you know, provocation, experience. People occupy it, they learn from it, but it doesn't necessarily always have to work or be the kind of the final solution or the final answer. Yeah, I was going to ask how did, how was it being a restaurateur that way? <laughs> yeah, well, that was. I mean, that's always when you do things. Um, what we've learned, what we learned early on with our projects is. And I'm going to talk about this in a slightly roundabout way. But when you get to the idea of kind of durability in a sculpture, you're talking about materials. And you're making sure mm-hmm. your materials are, are durable so that the idea you have can last for, for a long time. Now, when it comes to live pieces, or what, we, what we talked about earlier, of installations or, or experiences which are then occupied, you need to kind of find the same models of durability. And those we found have often taken us towards having to set up social enterprises and employ people and and kind mm. of, you know, if you want an idea to continue and the arts funding has run out, you very quickly have to learn how to do loads of stuff you never really wanted to learn and right. um, learn how to keep the doors open. And I guess it's a creative process that throughout generations people have gone through is they've, they've started something in a, with their own volunteering time and with maybe some grant funding and then they very quickly had to learn, oh, my God, how, this is working and it's nice, but how the hell do we keep the doors open? How do we keep it, it running? And so right. we've kind of through that, we through that had to, one of the tools of our, our work has been like, you know, writing business plans and employing people and all that kind of stuff is one of the tools we use to make sure the ideas are durable. Um, and that's a, it's a funny journey to go on from an arts perspective. So I guess the uh, old saying is true. Every 
great big entrepreneurial idea quickly devolves into hard work. But Andy and Paul have turned the generation of great ideas itself into art and with great success. I was curious whether they had a format or a system for involving experts from the myriad of disciplines that they tap in each of their projects. Um, so it really depends on the project. So different projects, we collaborate in different ways. Um, an example is we did a project with the Royal Kew Gardens Institute, which is a horticultural research institute in the UK. And that was a process of listening for six weeks, walking around and picking the brain of soil experts who were telling us, you know, what is the recipe for making soil? And then we kind of created that recipe as a series of installations and sculptures, um, which people could visit and we would talk about and, and show them how these little machines worked, which together would create soil. So that's us being in listening mode. But in some of the more kind of longer term projects, we're, I guess what we do is we create a new vehicle, as best way to describe, a new organization with a clear concept, um, a clear purpose. And then we invite or employ or find people to join that new organization. And sometimes they can be voluntary organizations. Sometimes they're actual, you know, everyone's paid. Sometimes they're um, a hybrid of the two. Um, and then we basically invite our collaborators into that new sort of world or organization that we create. And those are the really deep, long-term relationships, like, you know, working with someone for 10 years over, mm. over a project. Um, and then I guess we have professionals that advise. So, you know, that could be an expert on how to how can you integrate green materials um, and seeds and plants into concrete structures when concrete is naturally a hostile environment for them so that's working with uh, a firm like Arup and, and someone that kind of knows knows how to do that knows how to create a mix which is actually friendly to to plants and nature rather than hostile um, so there's different many different types of collaboration in our work but I guess as artists, we're always having to hold the position of clear concept. And because our ideas are not always research-led, we're having to take a lot of people on a journey of like, we think, let's have a go at this, and we think it will work. Um, and I'd say that, again, in this terms of disciplines, you get a lot of faith. There's a lot of faith put in the arts because the budgets aren't always huge and there's an experimental mindset from the outset. Mm -hmm. You're able to take people on a journey without having always that much proof. And I think that's a really important, you know, this burden of proof on all ideas in the world, which may be only entrepreneurs and artists are given the liberty to, to dream and to test and to play a bit. Um, whereas in like so many other disciplines, I say this coming from a kind of trained in an engineering background, kind of thought about risk dominates everything. And also mm -hmm. like, Needing to know the endpoint before you started dominates everything, um, and I and I think that's where, with an art kind of conceptual mindset, artistic mindset, we can kind of just make some stuff happen that probably wouldn't have happened in the same way if we hadn't been able to to wear that hat of artist. Given their purposeful imaginations, I really wanted to know what was the most ambitious, unrealized project in their provocateur's bag of tricks. 
So just as a note, though, uh, Paul references the Internet phenomenon for 2005 called the Million Dollar Homepage. It's now, of course, Internet history being recognized as the first example of viral marketing. And it's a, you know, it was about a, a 21-year-old guy named, I think it was Alex True from Texas, um, who was broke and he's looking for a way to pay for his college tuition. And he hits upon the idea of selling a million pixels for a dollar each. And the buyers of the space could, you know, put whatever message they wanted on that home page. And, well, the rest is history. And, yes, he raised over a million dollars in less than two months. I mean, I've been interested in, in some time in kind of um, creating a com- almost a community um, from, yeah, it's almost like trying to reimagine how to create a community from scratch. Um and so we've done quite a lot of research in the past around um, self-built communities, which are much more common in the U.S. Um, but the ideas of um, self-built community, um, community land trusts, ways of mm. organizing space so they can be occupied, in my mind, with greater level of um, informality um, and the way that many dwellings and um dwellings and places have built over time historically has been without as much central planning, without as much financial oversight and control. So we've had quite quite a few interesting ideas knocking around, around like, you know, trust and land and um, could we create almost a mechanism that let people, or, or a sculpture that let people just occupy it and actually live on it and build on it. Um, and one of the kind of, um, I don't know if you remember, like the Million Pixel Project, which came about right at the kind of early days of the internet. And this young kid just bought, he just bought a million, um, basically he, he sold a million pixels um, on the screen. And then people from all around the world could kind of bid, bid to um, advertise on the screen. And it was a really early example of this kind of like crowdsourced, um, object or, or image that was assembled by literally millions of people each putting what they wanted on a pixel. Really mm. early internet idea. Well, I guess I kind of was quite interested in what happens if you did that to land. Like, what happens yeah. if you take a square, we could, we could as a sculpture take a square kilometre of land and invite people from all around the world to build something on each pixel of that land and then mm-hmm. see what, see what, see what that becomes. Um, and I guess that, would be both a terrifying project <laughs> to lead, <laughs> um, but also kind of um, <laughs> kind of fascinating. Um, yeah, I, I, I suppose that, that would, yeah, <laughs> that would probably put. I don't know that you'd have to create all sorts of rules, right? Like because you exactly. like what kind of footprint they have and who can do what, and I don't know. That's um daunting. <laughs> <So that's, laughs> or at least maybe some role you don't really want, like. Yeah, I was a dream about like, oh, if I had my own island, I could like create, I could be king, I could be, you know, I could do. And then I start thinking about it, and I'm like, oh god, I don't know. like all the people would look to me to do this crap, and I'd have to like, or you know, I'd have to settle disputes, and <laughs> it'd get really boring really quickly. The job, exactly. <laughs> I, I'd want to be a benevolent despot, but but I, I'm sure I would just get frustrated. And be a tyrant. 
<laughs> I'd hope we'd avoid we'd, we'd avoid that. I, mean, I think it's, it's um, I mean, often it's kind of also there. There is a kind of bit of our work which is create. It is creating structures that other people then run and lead, and that sort of process of of the of sometimes kind of purposeful detachment is a kind of imperfect. It's very imperfect. Like it's really hard to do, but it is definitely always our end our end goal is to kind of set something up that other people care about more than us in a weird way uh-huh. and they care enough to grow it or to develop it. Um, and that's quite exciting. Paul then turned the interview table upside down and asked me what I thought about art playing a role in problem solving, full stop, as he put it. I stumbled to answer and instead play the art snob. Well, I mean, what do you think uh, in terms of from your perspective of art playing a role in problem solving full stop, how do you feel about that? Uh, I, well, if it's done well, and I think you guys do it well, uh, I think it's really very interesting. I mean, uh, it's hard, you know, sometimes when I talk to the, the artists that operate this way, um, you know, they're really, they on the spectrum, they're more activist than artists. And, uh, and sometimes, so if they go too far in the activist side, then uh, it doesn't become very artful, and it's kind of clunky, right? Like there's this uh, concept that they want to get across, and I'm like, well, why don't you just, you know, be a community organizer, and you'll get to your goal a lot faster than, you know, walking around in a, in a performance piece along a bridge or, or whatever they do. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and but they're like, well, I'm an artist, and this is the best way I can communicate. And I'm like, well, I don't know, you know, you're kind of being more of an activist than an artist, and and you know, the art you're making is kind of weak compared to the gravitas of of your mission. And um, there's probably more effective ways of of, of doing it. That that's that's you know on the on the downside on the on the upside when it's done really well then it it can in fact start a dialogue and and there's um you know it's a re- it's a really novel way to break through the the cacophony surrounding you know, or you know the cacophony of daily life and you know the being bombarded on instagram and all that and and if it's done well uh you know it breaks through all that Paul responded with an interesting thought about the authorship of art in their own projects. That's really interesting. I think that's, and I wonder whether that means that the, I mean, activism is, I think you could say in a, in a polarized, but in a, in an active state, (laughs) which maybe 10 years ago, it it was less so. And Mm -hmm. I guess that art, you know, I think we're, we're always constantly having to check this in ourselves as like, does it stop art being arts when other people are doing it? And if if there's a vibrant, if there's vibrant activism around an idea already, then maybe that isn't where you're going to be as fruitful as an artist working. Is to kind of move on to the next thing quickly, and to keep keep exploring different terrain. Because I think you know we're now in a in a time when people are active, and we haven't been able to mm-hmm. say that necessarily for quite for many decades. Um, and that is probably where, if you continue to play in those spaces, which have now become deeply understood and serious, you're at risk of 
being on the wrong side of history. And it's probably mm. that journey as an artist to keep looking and go, okay, well, actually, where, what can I learn about? What can I read now that gives me this, the impetus to create something else? Um, which is in some ways, you know, it's quite, it can be quite, um, quite hard work really of not, because you're working in areas which are serious to people's lives. Um, mm-hmm. You need to, do need to stay on your toes. Um, I think social practice in that way is it is more accountable and it's easier for it to go wrong um, than work that's just resides in galleries or work where you're creating a visual experience for somebody or an emotional experience. What I find amazing about Someone and Son is that Paul and Andy have hit the triple bottom line trifecta. They're able to deliver the high concept that actively involves the community, but they also actually do good, and the piece evolves over time. I don't know how best to describe this, but I guess it's a constant challenge for us to keep keep the artistic bit of projects as well. Because we always start with a really strong vision, but I think the nature of something live and real hitting the real world and staying in it for a long time is often its concept changes and it gets kind of um, normalised in a weird way, both because after that initial impact of someone being in it, 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 that is something that people feel once. But once you've actually done this, it becomes a sort of part of the everyday fabric. And this project we did, Barking Bathhouse, kind of reminds me of that a lot, is that we, you know, we built a, a bathhouse like out of timber in the middle of a car park in a very run-down part of East London um, with a wood-burning stove, sauna, and this, like, you know, ice-cold showers and um, outdoor an outdoor um, relaxation room, which was basically a load of old bark chip and uh, some trees. And when you first start that, it's just like the most weird thing um, that landed in this location. Um, but, you know, after four or five weeks, you start getting regulars coming down from the local. <laughs> You're like, I'm just going for a sauna. <laughs> and it, and, it's, and then, then, then we got like, the national newspaper came down and did a review of it just as a star, like not as an art thing. <laughs> like, and it's like, what the, what the hell? And then literally two years later, we find out that in the the luxury spa conference of the whole world, apparently, like there's a picture of it in the keynote speech of the future of spas. And we're just thinking, bloody, bloody hell, what have we done? <laughs> I asked Paul about the immediate future of social practice, and he pointed to people who are inspiring the inspirer. I think it's positive, you know, it's really positive that there is such thing as, as social practice, which died off for like 30 or 40 years, and is now, you know, coming to the fore again. And it's important that we are challenging, challenging this kind of art as, art as objects in the public realm idea. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd recommend you check out, there's a really amazing um, Instagram feed and website called The White Pube in, in the UK. Um, who are two curators who are absolutely battering, you know, battering the privileged, white, um, exclusive mindset of the art world, but doing it in a really helpful way. So they're doing things like 
crowdsourcing successful applications from artists and then publishing mm. them online. So if if an artist has successfully raised money, they're getting in touch and saying, hey, would you mind putting your application just out there for everyone to learn from? Mm. Again, as a kind of effort to dismantle the, the innate privilege in, in that the arts often attracts um, right. and actually democratise it. But also they're pretty, you know, they're pretty fun and, um, you know, strong um, curators who have, who have done all sorts of things of calling out artists of, who, are, who are not living up to their values, of kind of drawing attention to um, unethical treatment of art workers. They're really a, they're an amazing, amazing um, organisation. All right, man. Well, it's been a pleasure. All right, speak soon. Have, have a good day. Hope you're not too tired. Uh, yeah, I'm going back. Glad to hear it. Good. All right. Take it easy. Bye-bye. Bye, mate. You've been listening to A.G. Geiger Presents Tales from the L.A. Art Underworld. My guest this morning, and it is this morning, it's only one in the afternoon, his time, has been the London-based artist Paul Smythe, who, along with the also London-based Andy Merritt, is one half of the duo Someone and Son. You can see pictures of their work on aggeiger.com and learn more about them at somethingandson.com. Com, you really should check it out. Really very cool. You can also check out Paul's shout out to the White Pube at whitepube.com, and that's pube with a P as in pubic. It's a sharp elbow at the UK's most revered gallery, the White Cube. AG Geiger Presents is produced by me, Michael Delgado, in conjunction with the Mayfair Hotel LA and the music and artist management company Regime 72 and A.G. Geiger Fine Art Books. Check us out at MayfairLA.com, Regime72.com, and of course, A.G. Geiger.com. Thanks for listening.